everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Just the Basics. I'm your host, Tommy Bowles. I'm Matt Shaw. We're bringing you the beat once a week here. We're going to continue our series today, season one, episode three now uh, of our music theory series or season, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what to call it. So this week, last week, we talked about key signatures and scales, and that's a really good foundation to start out with when you're talking about music theory, because you really can't build anything without that. Mm-hmm. It's like trying to build your car without the frame. It just, you know, you have nothing to bolt everything else into. So the next topic today is something that just builds on that just a little bit. It's uh, taking the next logical step once you have your sets of notes, and we're going to be talking about triads and extensions today. And we're not talking about the Chinese gang. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So triads are really simple, uh, as you could probably assume. If you look at the name triads, tri, T-R-I, you'd be three. So triads are three notes stacked up in thirds. Um, some people, I kind of thought about this when I was making my notes. I researched it just to double check. Some people do expand that definition to include any set of three notes. Mm. In my opinion, that's not really a good thing to do. No, I I don't agree with that entirely. Just because I think it is a, for one thing, that makes it a little bit too confusing. Because I think the triad it's, is your starting spot for forming yeah. the quality of a chord. And mm-hmm. if you just start saying any three notes is a triad and then you think that that's okay well it does it define a chord no then it's not a triad it's just three note pairs yeah. and those are useful um when you're composing and you're playing but they are not defining for a chord they might be a voicing out of a chord and we'll talk about that later but i don't think that that counts necessarily as a triad Right. I agree. And there, I mean, because if you just have any three notes, you could have a C, a C sharp, and a D. That's that's no triad. That's a cluster. It, you know, it's it's completely different. It's got a different effect, different sound. It doesn't, doesn't work the same way. Mm-hmm. So, and triads are so foundational to music theory that it, if you expand the definition too much, if you expand the definition too much, you're losing the meaning of it. And at that, so at that point, it doesn't really matter. So we're just going to base off of our, for our purposes, triads are just the three notes that are stacked in thirds. So the root, the third, and the fifth of the chord. Um, now that does bring up an inter- a good point that I wrote down is that triads are chords, but chords aren't necessarily triads. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Mind blown. <laughs> so yeah, chords can be all sorts of different stuff. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, and a little bit more in this episode when we get to extensions, but also once we get to our episode on harmony, which will be, I think, week six of this series. I can't remember. It'll be later on in the series where we talk about harmony. So we'll talk about that a little bit more about what exactly is a chord, what makes it up, and what right. what its purpose is. But we're just going to keep it simple today and just talk about the first three notes from now. Like I said, they represent the first, the third, and the fifth pitch in the scale. Pretty straightforward. Now, the next thing, like with triads that I found, I hated learning this part of music theory (laughs) because I just thought it was redundant and just didn't make any sense, but it helped some people, so I'm going to, we'll go over it. So, 
obviously there's major chords, minor chords, major scales, minor scales. So you have your intervals, your major thirds, your minor thirds, all that stuff. It's so when you're defining triads, some people like to look at it this way. Me personally, I just like to look at it and just know what it is, but my brain, I guess, works a little bit different than some people. Mm. So when you're stacking your thirds, that the, the way that you stack the thirds defines what the triad actually is. If it's major, minor, diminished, or augmented. Yes. So your major triad would be a major third followed by a minor third. So one to three is a major third. Three to five is a minor third. So by major third, how many, how many half steps is that? That's four half steps for a major third? Yes. Or three half steps for a minor third. So mm-hmm. if you take a piano out, you know, you can just follow the half steps on there and you'll figure it out. So one to three. Take a piano out of your back pocket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> just whip a grand piano You can piano get them on out. your phone now. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> it was just a funny image. Hey, listener. Boom! <laughs> Here comes the piano. Kind of like hammer time, but piano time. Or like those cartoons where a piano falls out of the sky and squishes a little character walking around. Uh, cue the Looney <laughs> Tunes music. Ba-da-ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Boom! And the piano breaks and you have those horrible sounds. <laughs> <laughs> so if you stack a major third, then a minor third, you have a major triad. If you reverse that and do a minor third, then a major third, you have a minor triad. Mm-hmm. So it's opposite. Then if you do two minor thirds, you have a diminished triad. That's the one that sounds all dark and creepy. Mm-hmm. And then if you add a major third and then another major third, you have what's called an augmented triad. I feel like augmented chords are the least common out of these. I play them they, a whole freaking bunch, but yeah, they are the... I, even when I'm teaching triad stuff, sometimes I they completely glance my mind <laughs> and I feel like a dum-dum if I yeah. feel like mentioning it. The, yeah, they're just not used as quite as often, especially in popular music. You don't see augmented chords a lot, a lot because they're so... I don't know, in a way, I feel like they're almost, um, almost more... Um, I don't want to say... Like, in a way, they're almost more uh, crunchy than a diminished chord. Yeah, there's... In, I think the reason for that is a diminished chord, it's crunchy, quote-unquote, but it kind of rests on itself. Right. So it has this r- relaxing, uh, dissonant area that it just kind of floats around. And even mm-hmm. though it is used in progressions to move forward, it's ju- it just feels nice. It's just a nice place to be. Whereas an augmented chord, a lot of the time, if you hear it, even though it's a wider uh, voicing between those intervals, it feels like it has to go forward. Like you got to get out of there, which is why I use yeah. it a lot. Because if you just throw the augmented in, moving into something else, it is so satisfying. It's a tension right. moment that leads into an immediate release. Um, which sounds yeah. really good. And that, that's why, even though it doesn't necessarily quote unquote crunch, unless you have some intervals in there that do crunch, it does feel a little more crunchy on the soul. <laughs> right, right. Well, I can see that. So 
Uh, it makes sense to me. That's kind of, I, go ahead. Um, uh, what, how do you think about it differently that makes it, makes this a little bit more sensible to you? Cause I know how I think of these triads right. and how to change them. And it's definitely not by intervals. Like I do explain that to my students when I teach them that, because in case their mind works in this, uh, interval stacks, but I imagine right. that you and I think about it the same way. So just explain the way you think about it, just in case it's different. Yeah, I I know I understand what you mean because, like, I I knew people in college that they if they didn't understand why I didn't like thinking about it as far as the intervals, the major, minor, third. I just I feel like that is just more work than it needs to be. I don't know. It so, is. Yeah, the way I looked at it is, unless it's diminished or augmented, the root and fifth stay the same. So mm-hmm. that's that's not changing. So if you're in the key of C, for example, we'll make that because that's easy. Your root is C and your fifth is G. So if it's a major chord or a minor chord, those are staying exactly the same. So I knew I didn't have to worry about those. So I didn't. Mm-hmm. I just didn't bother. <laughs> Pretty straightforward there. And then I knew if you... And so basically I was only concerned about the third note of the scale. So that E, whether it was going to be an E natural or an E flat. And... The reason is, is because your ear, like if you play just a chord and you play one, three, then the octave, it sounds like a full chord without the fifth note being in there. Because it's your brain. Yeah. Right. Your brain kind of autofills that, that fifth pitch in the key when you're just playing, when it's a regular fifth, it's not augmented or diminished. So I never really worried about that. And especially because I knew I was probably going to play that in a walking line somewhere where it was just as a, you know, a nice, nice little note to hang on, but not just to sit on all day because I didn't really need to mm-hmm. because your, your brain just kind of hears that. So I was concerned about the third note because that's what defines major and minor. So that's how I looked at it. Cause then I didn't have to overcomplicate it. I didn't have to think, okay, major, minor or minor, major because that was just too much work for me and it slowed me down. I didn't like that. And then when it came to diminished and augmented, well, those are pretty straightforward too. When it's augmented, I knew it was a major third because, I don't know, I just remembered it. (laughs) I know I'm not much help. Uh, It's I just kind of knew augmented chord, I'm just going to take my regular chord and make the fifth sharp. Because, well, okay, I guess this is why I did it. Because in jazz, you don't see it written as a C, and then the sign for augmented is a plus sign. You don't normally see C plus. No. You would see C, then in parentheses, sharp five. And so that's how I remembered it. And then like a diminished chord is not normally written C, D, I, M for diminished. It normally is written C minor flat five. So that's kind of how I remembered it, because I knew the jazz notation for it, and I just kind of went with it that way. It was, I felt like it was easier for me to remember everything going that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I literally never think of chords based just on their intervals. I, Mm -hmm. of course, that's how they are built and we need to understand that, but that's not, that's not the fastest way to think about it on the fly. So usually I think of, of one, three, five, that's your major chord. That's our most basic triad no matter where you are. So in C, it's C, E, G. Now, do you want a minor chord? Flat the third, C, E, flat, G. Do you want it diminished? C, E flat, G flat. 
And then, and that's why, that's where I stop with students. So that there's like these three versions of the triad of C, E, G, and then flat those two notes. And then after that, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, but there's a secret. Now go back to your major. What if you sharp the five? And then they go C, E, G sharp. And they're like, oh, that sounds interesting. I was like, okay, now that's called an augmented. And the reason that I do that is just because one, be like we said, augmented, we don't see that much as a triad. So they don't need that in their arsenal as much. And right, it kind of complicates things for their brains where I can just focus on major, minor, diminished in the changing of those three notes and just flatting them. And then have augmented mm-hmm. be this special occasion thing that they won't forget because I made it seem special and secret. Like I was giving them a, a password to the clubhouse. Right. But which it won't just mess password. up their way of building triads. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's I think that's a good way to look at it because you don't want to drink from a fire hose. Mm-hmm. You got to take it just simply. And I just I feel like going major, minor, third, minor, minor, third, major, major, third, whatever, minor, major. I feel like that's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. It overcomplicates it. Like my my college level theory textbook that I've got sitting in front of me here that does it major, minor, third, minor, minor, third, whatever. And I just I don't know. I feel like they're taking a simple concept. And they're making it be like 35 pages, 30 pages, something like that, to talk about something that they could have talked about in a page. Yeah. Because they're overcomplicating it from what it has to be. Now, I know it's a college book, so that's why they do that. But that's not our goal here. We want to make it simple for you. Mm -hmm. And this is supposed to be functional. So basically, the functional aspect of a triad is it defines your chord. Is it minor? Is it major? Is it diminished? Or is it augmented? And that's pretty much... All you need to know about it. I mean, it's three notes. Not right. Not too bad. I think one thing that um, like you listeners can do with this, of course, the piano is the most straightforward way of looking at right. these triads just because it lays everything out for you. But um, as a guitar player, you can see this with um, movable chords. But in case you don't actually know those movable bar chords yet, and we're certainly not going to explain them on this podcast, then what I would say is play your A major chord in open position, then play mm-hmm. the A minor. Now you've seen where the the uh, the major third is flatted to a minor third, and then take the E of right. that chord and lower that one, and there you go. Now you've seen turning that into a diminished. And um, that that can give you a bit of a visual for how on a guitar things can just change that easily. Your shapes, um, you might just think of them as different shapes. They get different sounds. But remember, your guitar is very similar to a piano. You just change the notes to get the qualities that you need. So, Right. Yeah, you always have to think about the notes. You don't want to just think, oh, this is a major shape and this is a minor shape. Yeah, I mean, yeah, those are good to have because then you don't have to think as much. But if you only rely on what shape you're using, then if someone changes the game and says, okay, well, hey, we're going to do this a little bit differently here. Instead of playing this minor chord here, we're going to play this tritone sub or whatever it is. Then all of a sudden you're hosed. It's like, crap, what am I going to do? Because you don't, you know, you're just relying on a shape to get you there instead of the actual note structure. Right. Um, On a bass, it's a little bit... um, a little bit harder to show you on bass. So 
basically, I recommend playing arpeggios one, three, five octave, and then playing your minor arpeggio one flat three five octave, and then your diminished one flat three flat five octave, then one three sharp five octave. Just playing your arpeggios up and down the neck, going them over a two octave range, playing them in every position you possibly can, starting on different fingers, all that good stuff. That's really the only way to learn it. And they're, I mean, our triads are the basis for everything harmonically. You use them for improvisation because those are the notes that you know are safe that you can just sit on and not care. Like mm-hmm. you could just sit on the third of a chord and say that the whole measure and not change the note if you don't want to because you know it's going to be a safe note. Um, they're vital for walking bass lines. Without the triads, you know, it's like what notes are important to hit, what notes aren't. Well, if you don't know your chord tones and your triads, it's kind of like you're not really going to know. You're going to play all the wrong notes, and then people are going to look at you like, what the heck's wrong with the bass player? (laughs) (laughs) Well, people probably won't look at you like, what's wrong with the bass player? They'll probably just get lost, and then it'll be a train wreck, and then everybody's going to blame you later. (laughs) (laughs) Or just not call you back, and that's always possible too. (laughs) Thankfully, that's never happened to me, though. Right. <laughs> the way another thing too with these is remembering which uh or is building your triads off of different chord or different uh scale tones in your key. This is more of a concept for our lesson on harmony, but I'll hit it briefly right here. In your major keys, of course, your first bu- building everything off the scale degree. So, by scale degree in the key of C what I'm talking about your first scale degree is C, your second is D, your third is E, et cetera, et cetera. Really straightforward. So building off the first scale degree would be a major scale. Off the second, you'd have a minor scale. Off the third, you have a minor. Off the fourth is a major. Off the fifth is a major. The sixth is minor, and then the seven is diminished. Uh, those are important more so than what I'm telling you right now. We will go over that more in our episode on harmony, though. I don't want to give you more than what you need right now. The minor keys are the same thing, just starting on a different part of the pattern. Right. So they're minor, then diminished, then major, then minor, then minor. Now, remember, so this the the second minor here I just mentioned is the fifth scale degree. You're almost always going to play that as major anyways because you're going to play it with the harmonic minor with the raised seven. But mm-hmm. for typical you, or you know, almost always you're going to see that. But for this purpose, just remember, it's minor in your natural scale. Your natural minor scale is that's going to be a, a fifth is a minor chord, um, and then the sixth is major and the seventh is major. So it's literally the same thing, like we've been saying all along. Minor and major are the same thing, just starting on a different scale degree. Mm-hmm. One cool thing about triads is you don't have to always play them with the root note on the bottom. So you don't always have to play one three five. You could play three five one or three one five or five three one or five one three. If you start on the third scale degree, it's called first inversion. If you start on the second scale degree, which is the fifth note, then it is called uh, second inversion. So that didn't really make a lot of sense. If you start on the third, it's first inversion. If you start on the fifth, it's second inversion. Sorry. There you go. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I said second. I was just thinking second inversion. I think you meant like if you start on the... the, Second note of the triad. The second note and then the third note, but you said second because second ver- it it's yeah. annoying because when you start with this in music theory and you hear first inversion, you're like, Oh, well, shouldn't that be the root position one? And then they're like, No, 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 no. 
Yeah. They really should have named it second inversion and third inversion or something just to, I don't know, kind of support the the newbies in this or something or just come up with a different word for it. But yeah, whatever. It it makes sense once you think of it as the first inversion. And then the second inversion, that's the thing. It's not like your first and second. Yeah. And in modern music, you're not going to see it written as C first inversion. It's going to say C over E or one over three. So it's really easy. They give it to you right there. You don't have to think about it. It's written on the paper for you. But yeah, uh, when you're playing in a regular set, well, okay, I'm not going to get that far ahead yet. Contrary to popular belief, though, everybody does need to know your inversions and to actually play them, not just the bass player. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> when I first started playing in a band, the first time I got to an inverted chord, it was like C over E, and I was like, what do I do? I, I've never seen this before. And they're like, oh, that's the only person that's important for is you. You just need to make sure you play the E. Everybody else just plays regular C. I was like, oh, okay. I'm just going to say that that's a total shock because I won't tell you how many times the first time that I saw that really young and I mean, I don't know how young you saw that, but it was, oh, you go from a C chord to an E chord and then you go to the next chord. Oh, that's, that's how funny. I, it was I never thought about that first. And I was just like, well, that sounds really bad. So basically you're playing an, um, an augmented major seven chord in a way. Cause you had the G sharp and the B <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Well, it was, Playing a C and well, it was hitting a C at that spot, and then in the next beat, going to an E major chord. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Why? Why would somebody explain that like that? That's just how it was told to me at first, and said person, I don't even remember who they were, but they didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't know what theory or inversions were. It's just what I was told, and I was just like, okay. And then I kind of just ignored it in the future because I immediately realized that's not right. I'm not sure what this is, but it's not right. Wow. Yeah. So all of our listeners don't do that. That's a bad never, mistake. ever, ever. Do. I have I do have students that that is immediately what they do because they just see the one chord name and the other chord name. And then I have to hammer it into them or I have to take a pen and scratch it on out to communicate that. No, 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 no. That's not its own chord. We'll deal with that eventually once you just learn this chord. Right. That's crazy. Yeah, I was just told that the only person that had to play the bottom note was me. Which is also very wrong. (laughs) It is. But at the time, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I went on for years before I realized that was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I would just play the bottom note, whether it was E or if it was like one that's really popular to do, especially in like contemporary worship music is a five over seven chord. So in the key of C, that'd be a G over B. The reason that's so popular is because it creates a really strong pull to the root of the chord. True. And so it sounds really nice, especially like if it's a six uh, six minor chord, then a five over seven to a one. So A minor, G over B, C, you have that walk up there. And it sounds really nice. So I just you know went with it for the longest time. And then when I realized I was wrong, I started to hear it. And I realized that other people weren't doing it. And then it really bothered me. Like there was one particular instance I can think of. And I'll probably never forget this because I was so frustrated. During rehearsal, we were playing and we hit one of those inverted chords and it sounded terrible. I was like, what on earth is going on? And I'm looking around and 
I knew that the only culprit that it could have been on the stage that could have causing it to sound that bad was the piano because I was looking at where the guitars were playing it and all of them were capoed. So they were all playing it too high up the neck for it to interfere with what I was doing. So it didn't really make a difference for them. Right. And so I looked over at the piano and the piano player's left hand was like on the edge of the keyboard. So the, what oh. happened was is the piano player was playing the root note of the chord in a lower pitch than I was playing the inverted three of the chord. And so what happens is because at lower frequencies, yeah, at lower frequencies, you know, lower pitches, the frequencies are wider. It takes something like 46 feet, I think, for an E uh, to complete one wave cycle. I might not be completely wrong. Listeners, you can correct me there. It's something ridiculous like that, though. I don't know so, the science. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know it's huge. So when it's that low of a pitch, when you have two that are two pitches close to each other that low, the frequencies hit, clash like crazy. Because, yeah. I mean, think about it. So every octave you double in pitch. So if it's a if it's like an A440, that's 440 hertz. The next octave up, A is A80. And then the next octave up from that, what would that be? 1760? Like so yeah. as you yeah. get up, the frequencies are tighter, so there's more space in between the pitches. Mm-hmm. So it sounds the same to your ear, but there is more space, and so they don't clash with each other as much. So in the low frequencies, they just, it's like they just butt heads. It's like two goats trying to fight over another goat. I don't know. <laughs> smashing their heads at each other. <laughs> it's They're like those screaming goats in. screaming at each other over another goat who is also... Uh, Having a flatulence issue. He really wants to buy some gear. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it just, it doesn't sound good. It's not a good thing to do. And so it just, so I called her out on it. I was like, hey, what do you, that's not right. You need to play the, the same note as me because you're playing that, or at least play it the octave up so it's not getting in my way because I need to play it this low for it to sound right for the rest of the band. And they're like, oh, okay. So they fixed it for the rehearsal. Then the gig started, and immediately we got to that note, <laughs> and the same thing happened again. So I did a little bit of a fill run thing to make it look like I did it on purpose and popped up, up the octave, so that way it was playing the same note. Gotcha. Just an octave up, just to try to cover for ourselves. But it was so frustrating. I'm never going to forget that. <laughs> I have to do that every Sunday when I play bass. <sighs> yeah, Every time, it's one thing that's really common. Now, I feel like, just me personally, I don't like writing in inversions. I would rather leave the inversions up to the musician to figure out for themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of Uh, forcing a voicing. Yeah, (laughs) which sometimes is necessary. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you wrote in a way that you really do intend for there to be the inversion there. Yeah, like for example, if you're trying to get counter motion between the melody and the bass line, if you want the melody to the melody is falling down, but you want the bass line to move up toward it to create a more dense texture in the middle, then you have to write the inversions and you have to. Otherwise, the bass player is probably going to try to spread it out because that's what we normally do. Right. So, yeah, th- there are times where it is important to write them out, but for the most part, I would allow try to leave more space to allow the musician to let their creativity flow a little bit. Um, and the other thing too is I don't see a ton of inversions in most music and I think that's because of what we just talked about letting the musicians have some space to work 
It allows you to be a little that. bit more. Especially in our style, like in, in jazz, you mm-hmm. very, very, very rarely see them written. Yeah. I think it's more common in Latin than it is. I mean, it's significantly more common in Latin songs than it is in in swing because you pretty much yeah. never see it in swing or bop songs because they just know you're going to do what you want. So we might as well not waste the ink. <laughs> yeah. And in Latin music, normally the inversions, at least in my experience, the inversions that I see are normally over the fifth of the chord instead of over the third of the chord. Mm-hmm. So basically what that is doing is it's creating a suspended chord instead of an instead of an inverted chord. Yeah. So I don't really even look at those. Like if I see a D over A, I'm not normally thinking D over A. I'm normally thinking A suspended, which I know isn't completely right because of the fifth note in there. And then you have the F sharp instead of the E. I know it's not completely right, but it's pretty close. There's not a huge difference between the two. That's what it so, does for for the sound. Yeah, it creates a suspend. It suspends the five as well as the four, or so, or as well as the three. So instead of just a four three suspension, you have a four three and a six five. Mm-hmm. And so that's typically how I look at it. Now I know that's not exactly true. It is a D over an A, and it's not actually an A suspended. But that's typically how I look at it. It's kind of what that sounds like to me. And I think a lot of times too, especially in jazz notation, you're reading it, like if, you, if you're reading off of a real book, you're reading what somebody else transcribed. And so chances are in the original one, they didn't write D over A, they wrote just A. Right. And the bass player just kept, or they wrote just D, I mean, and the bass player just kept the A in the bass because it sounds good because you're doing one to five anyways, why not do five to one? You know, what's the difference? Yeah. And it's just starting at a different spot. I think now, we, Matt. Go ahead. What? Go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say you had talked about something earlier uh, before we started recording about the uh, about inversions on guitar and how they're not always necessary to play on guitar. Go ahead and uh, share a little bit more about that. I think that'll be interesting. Yeah. So for me and how I play, which is mostly not in open position. So if you're playing cowboy right. chords. You do need to be aware of those inversions because <laughs> sometimes it won't sound good. Like uh, if if you have a D over F sharp, which is fairly common in most cowboy chord styles, quote unquote, um, that is a good and easy inversion for you to use. You'll see the D slash F sharp. Just use your thumb, bam, put the F sharp on the bottom, and you have probably the easiest inversion that you can have in guitar. And I even like usually have the F sharp right there just so that I can play it. But anyway, that's besides the point. Uh, So open position guitar players, you should look at the inversions and pay attention to them. And if there's a bit of a weird crunch or a weird sound, then you have your answer. Now for me, when Mm -hmm. I'm playing higher in the neck, I'm using... Uh, different movable shapes and uh, the extensions that we're about to talk about and triads and such, I can basically ignore the inversions. I don't completely ignore them. And the reason for that is because if I'm playing alone, then that's a voicing that I can take advantage of because it's the intended voicing for that that point of the music. But even then, 
I might not actually use it. Um, it just depends right. the way that I'm playing. If I'm playing strictly by triads, then sure, I might use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I have a bass player or I have a piano player or somebody that's playing in the lower register, I never play the inversions ever. Right. That's their job. That is their note. I don't touch it. And that is what I was uh, taught is that you don't touch that note. If they're playing in root position, don't touch the root. Mm-hmm. If they're playing an inversion, try not to play that note. Avoid their note. Because no matter what, your your that octave will end up moving in parallel motion over time. And that's not something you really want over the full course of a song. So right. that means, um, especially if you have it on the bottom of your voicing. So if you're playing the exact same uh, basic bass line on your guitar as the bass is playing, you're just doubling up on their job and wasting time for yourself and energy and knock it off. (laughs) Right. And in some circumstances, doubling it is what you want because you're trying to create an emotion that that brings. Mm. But so here's why that's important, though, is so the, the guitar is an octave up from the bass. So the bottom E string on a guitar is an octave higher than the bottom E string on a bass. That's it. It's not a huge difference. Now that octave is, I, I still baffles my mind every time I hear the difference between playing an open E on a guitar versus an open E on a bass. That octave is a huge difference as far as the emotion and the feeling and the power behind it. Mm. But it's still only an octave. So if I play that line an octave up because that's where it fits more comfortably in the music and where that sound is, and Matt plays in the open position, well, we're playing the exact same exact same pitch. Not even the same note, but the same pitch. And so if I'm playing that E right there, and he's playing the G right there in that same minor third away from each other, that doesn't really sound all that great. And the other thing to consider, too, is what if your piano player is playing middle C right in the middle? <laughs> so if your piano player is playing right at middle C here, and the bass player is playing an octave below that, and the guitar player is playing in the middle between that, everybody's clustered in the same spot and there's Mm -hmm. no space for the music to breathe. So unless you're, even if you're playing different voicings and the, and the fact that the timbre of the instruments is different, it still is going to clash because the notes are within an octave and a half of each other. Right. So that's something you have to be, take, you have to take special care of. The only way to really do that is to open your ears and listen and to just know each other's playing styles. Like I know I can play basically anywhere on my fingerboard that I want to play when I'm playing with Matt because I know where he likes to play. He doesn't play a lot of open strings. He doesn't play a lot in the bottom of the guitar. He plays on the top top mm. three, four strings typically and around the middle of the neck, which I know that's high enough up where I can play almost anywhere on my neck and not get in his way. Mm-hmm. But I also know when he likes to play lower and when he likes to play lower, I either drop it really low or I go up higher than what he's playing because otherwise... It's like those two goats fighting again, just bashing heads. It right. doesn't, doesn't sound great. And that's, that's something that you can only get better at the more you do it and the more you listen and the more you get to know the players that you're playing with. Yeah, and like, usually when I would drop down low, I remember it would be like we were playing Chameleon and I'd drop down and play the bass line in, uh, in, like in reverse as you were mm-hmm. playing it just to purposefully create a 
extreme amount of crunch going on because the baseline right. is literally running mirrored to itself at the same time. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, um, it would sound cool, but it would be on purpose that it kind of hurts the ears. And uh, sometimes we play some other more uh, funky fusion kind of song. And I'd drop down and be playing around on my E string, slapping and popping it like a bass player might, just because it's a stupidly harsh and it can be fun to take advantage of that kind of a playing. But if you're, if you're playing gigs that are uh, in church, like a worship thing or a folk group in a pub, then you don't want crunch. You want wide open and natural sounds that don't clash. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for those uh, styles to hold to their own and not have the dissonance just because um, those are settings where that kind of tone is frowned upon. I, I, I might not agree with it with my own ear and it might not be what I like to hear, but it is what that audience and that style of music likes to hear. So you have to be conscientious right. of what you're playing and what you're allowed to do. And most yeah, styles and are kind of like that, where they want that open and natural, non-dissonant noise. Right. Well, and you got to think, too, about the timbre of the instruments being used. So in Very jazz, true. everybody's playing clean. So you have a really pretty, nice, clean, open, airy guitar sound. Well, not really airy, but open, warm guitar sound. And it breathes, it's got space. So those dissonant notes, they still, they still kind of talk to each other. You know, they're not just like crunchy fighting. They still kind of, I don't, there's something about it. I still like the way that they sound. But when you're playing more popular styles, rock or that sort of thing, where you're using an octave pedal or a distortion or some sort of chorus uh, chorus or a wah or tremolo, whatever you're using, any sort of effect on there, the, the, that creates the crunchiness itself. You don't have to play dissonant notes to make it sound crunchy mm-hmm. because you're getting that from your tone that you're using. So that's something you have to consider too. I know it's a lot that we're talking about and we're just talking about triads right now, but they're really they're really important. They're foundational to your chords that you're using. And I know mostly we've been talking about the inversions of it, but the reason inversions are so important is because it can sound really bad if nobody plays any inversions. You end up with no voice leading. You end up with everybody playing in the same exact spot. Ends up being a lot harder to play too. Yeah. It's kind of of crazy. It could be the reason that your group doesn't sound good. It could be. It could very well be why that you sound square. Mm-hmm. Even if you're playing just in a like a regular rock band worship setting, it could be why your group sounds square. Because if everybody is starting on one and then dropping down a fifth for the fifth for the five and then dropping down another whole step for the four and then dropping down another whole step or dropping going up, you know, another third for the sixth and then dropping down again. If everybody's moving those blocks like that, it just it sounds disconnected. And so sometimes that's the goal is to make it sound like that. But a lot of times it just sounds disjointed and not as musical. Ironically. Yeah. Like here's a fun, kind of a funny story about playing uh, root position chords, especially on piano. That is kind of interesting. So there was a, a jazz band setting and 
Matt, you and I actually were not in this band at that point. This was around Jericho, but this was after you and I were both gone. Oh. Um, my wife was in the band at this time, and so she was telling me about the the group just sounded kind of square, and it just not, something was not right about it. And she's not even a jazz musician, so she was kind of, for her to notice it, it has to be really square. Yeah. Like, it doesn't have to be that square for Matt and I to be like, oh, this is square, I don't like this. But for her, it has to be really square. <laughs> by so, square we mean it just sounds dull uh no one's really wrong. together there's nothing colorful about it it's just dead yeah there's something about it that's not right it's uninteresting or mm-hmm. just yeah square is kind of hard to describe it's more something you have to hear it's kind of like playing in the pocket like you know it when you hear it yeah and when we're when you're talking about jazz i guarantee everybody want to so Okay, people like to try to equate jazz to elevator music. Mm-hmm. Well, elevator music, even if it's playing something quote-unquote jazzy because it has a saxophone in there and people think that saxophone makes it jazz, <laughs> uh, it's, it's square. That's why people don't like it. It's, it's not, it doesn't swing. It doesn't groove. Nothing about it feels... Well, I mean, it has a groove, but it doesn't groove the right way. Um, right. Anyways, so they're trying to figure out what's going on. And the director walks over to the piano player and he's watching her play. And he's like, well, he didn't have to watch her, but because he heard it. But yeah, it turns out like she was playing everything in root position. So if it was something like, have you met Miss Jones? So it goes F major seven, F sharp diminished, G minor. Then it goes up to C minor. Then it goes to A minor. Then it goes to D minor. Then back to G minor. Then C, then back to F she was going the root position of every single one of those chords because no inversions were written on the chart. That must have been so difficult for her too. Yeah, exactly. And so she was struggling and she's like, how, why I can't play this. What's, why is this so, you know, it, it's this is really hard to play. It doesn't sound right. That and so really difficult to do, especially it, if the speed they were probably playing it too. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what song they were playing, uh, but that's just, Miss Jones, just for an example of it, but ah, yeah, when gotcha. when you're playing root notes like that, or you know, that's the reason I pick Miss Jones is because it moves in the circle of fourths for the most yeah. part, and pretty much every, uh, pretty much every jazz <coughs> tune moves in the circle of fourths at some point during the song. And when you're playing circle of fourths, it's not easy to play root position for everything. That's why bass players play walking bass lines. It gets us from point A to point B, and we can pick the way we get there, and it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> it's just for us, not for anybody else. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. But so what he did is he got her a, a book on, on inversions in jazz and how to play the inversions the right way. And it changed the course. It changed the whole band sound. The band, like I heard, uh, I heard a recording from one of their final concerts that they did. and. I mean, it wasn't like the level that it was when it was Rob Nanton playing piano, but yeah. it was still a lot better. It sounded sounded pretty close to jazz. I mean, it, it was a jazz <laughs> band at that point. <laughs> that is so brutal. <laughs> it was almost jazz. It's. I mean, at that point, it was a jazz band. You know, the the thing, reason I say it sounded pretty close to jazz is because the rhythm section didn't groove that tight. Ah, yeah, it's they, their fault. They it was, yeah, the chords sounded okay. The, the voicings, everything made sense and everything. The improvisations weren't as, didn't have as many hot licks. <laughs> the, the improvisation wasn't as good as what I am used to hearing. 
and the rhythm section wasn't quite as tight as what it was when we were playing in it. But we were a little bit different, though. We'd we, also been playing together a long time by the time we yeah, were finishing up on it. Exactly. We've been playing together for a long time. And what we did, I mean, Matt and I were roommates in college, and then our drummer was roommates with us, too. So the three of us, we since we were at home together all the time, we had a basement that we could go down and play as loud as we wanted. The neighbors couldn't hear us. So we went down and we played all the time. We were always playing together. And yeah, like rehearsal I mean, would finish and we'd stay late and keep the room as long as we could and all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. like that. So We were playing together probably hours a day. Uh, oh, yeah. At, at least with the rehearsals at uh, in classes and stuff, it was definitely hours a day and some some days several hours really it yeah so when like you, on Tuesdays you and really Thursdays. just spend all of your time playing and playing and playing and playing with the people that you're playing you grow at an exponential rate like i i can't really imagine where i'd be right now if that never stopped because oh, i know man. the fact that i, think I don't that we play as a couple much. records oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we would have had to but especially now that we know how it that should work and we could do it ourselves but i know anymore like i i play with kids mm-hmm. uh, kids don't necessarily challenge my level of playing they more have forced me to be more confident in everything that i do <laughs> so even right. though i've grown as a player and i do play better than i did then i know that sitting around with people that are challenging each other to grow that's right. That's an ideal environment to be in. That's why they uh, you'll hear sometimes always play with people that are better than you. Yeah, it's true. You always want to play with people that can push you. Like the reason why I loved playing with Matt and Tanner so much is because they push my technique wise, because harmonically speaking and note choice wise, I feel like I was pretty solid, but my technique, I couldn't play as fast as they could. Now, part of that is because on a guitar, it's just... <laughs> Yeah, on a guitar, it's a little bit different as far as speed and everything like that because the strings are lighter weight and all that good stuff. But yeah. that's shouldn't that's not an excuse. I still should be able to hang out, hang with them, you know. And then Tanner, he was just an, an amazing drummer. I remember when I played with him at a senior recital and he counted off Cherokee. I was like, oh no, because <laughs> <laughs> it was faster than I had ever played that sucker before. So I enjoyed playing because it, it pushed my technique beyond the limits of what I knew that I could do. Or like when we played that outdoor gig and he counted off that one. I still can't remember the name of that song. Cottontail. Uh, Cottontail. Yeah, yeah. It it just pushes you to a new level when you're playing with people. And the mistakes are what make it make you really learn. Like I remember I counted off song for my father too fast for our trumpet player to play the melody. And uh, <laughs> that's a, he that's made a it work. Be fast. <laughs> remember the glare he gave me? <laughs> I just he he gave me this look and I just smiled. <laughs> I just smiled and kept going. I'm like, too late now. <laughs> it's such a mellow song that ends up deceptively difficult if you take it too fast. I know. It I doesn't play sound it like it'd be now, hard, but, but the- back then I would try to play it and I'd be like, Oh, this this is actually yeah. a, yep. a a challenge to go quick. The intervals on it are awkward. Yeah, that's the There's thing. Some it, awkward. Is it's a little weird. It doesn't lay perfectly and eventually it feels right but (laughs) yeah it's a fun tune anyways yeah we've gone on about that (laughs) yeah it's it's fun it's i love that tune anything horace silver just makes me want to dance i love man i love that guy he has some awesome music um so 
beyond the triads, we have extensions, which extensions are where you get to add all the color notes and all the fun stuff. Yay. So your one, three, five, your triad, that defines the chord, the quality and everything. The extensions are the color. They add the texture and personality and make it more fun. Mm. So typically they're the seven, nine, 11, and 13. And there's a reason why you go nine, 11, and 13 instead of two, four, and six. Um, if someone wrote, you know, C2, that's a different chord than C9. So yeah. C9 would be C, E, G, then your seven, which would be B. Well, it technically would be B flat. I'll get to that in a second. And then D, which is your second note of the scale, but because it's nine, it's an octave up. If you write C2, you're playing C, D, and G. You're leaving out the third pretty much all the time. Sometimes people play the D and the E next to each other, but that just sounds not good. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Yeah. So when you're talking about extensions, you're talking about stacking. There's continuing to stack the thirds up the scale. So just like one, three, five in the triad is up a third every time, you add a third every time you go up in extension. So it's pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. They just add so much color to it. The biggest one being the seventh, of course. If you play jazz without playing sevens, then you are the definition of square. <laughs> <laughs> like the, so the seven is used almost all the time in jazz whether it's the dominant seven or major seven when you see it written out if you just see c7 that's implying dominant so it'll be c with a b flat c e g b flat mm-hmm. if you see c major seven it'd be c e g b you have the major seven there so just a small little distinction there they're important because, especially the seven, they it creates a really strong pull. Like the dominant seven creates a super strong pull toward the next, toward the chord that's a fourth up from it. So, like, I'm sure everybody's heard the two five one uh, cadence in jazz. It's weird. Two five one is such a strong cadence, but you don't hear it in a lot of music other than jazz. But it's probably my favorite as far as cadences back to the one. Because yeah, it has such a strong pull, and it's just straight up and forth. It's awesome. I don't know why people don't use it more. It's very useful for uh, progressions in general. I I use it regularly no matter what I'm doing, but it really is the jazz sound. It's, it's odd just because it's a very, very, very strong progression, and yet mm-hmm. it's just owned by jazz pretty much. And as soon as you yeah. start playing it, it instantly, poof! It's yep. turned well, into I a mean, jazzy sound, even though it's not like, especially if it's just a minor seven to a dominant seven to a one, um, uh, a, a, a two minor seven to a five yeah, yeah, seven yeah. to a one. That was weird to say, uh, that that's not the most complex thing on the planet. And, uh, jazz has hundreds of, uh, cadence resolutions that are more, uh, complicated than that, but it's, it's the most still common, just, though. Whoosh, there you go. Now now you're in the land of jazz. You might have been in folk music, but not anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in that way, yeah. it's almost dangerous to use it if you're not in the proper setting. That's true. That's true. Like, especially, even ex- all extensions in general, if you throw a major seven in there in a worship band setting, sometimes <laughs> it just doesn't sound good. <laughs> no, I mean, I because the singers get it. mad at you. <laughs> Yeah, because then you have that clashing and they can't figure, it just sounds, it's it crunches because you have the half step between the seven and the one. And oh, as soon as I use a, a a dominant seven, 
it almost every time in uh in worship it's immediately yeah. like oh that's a that's a jazzy sound they they all know that i that i play jazz and i teach and that's what i do but i'm just sitting there like, like actually that's uh that 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 was in the music like even worship yeah. music uses a dominant 7 sometimes <laughs> Yeah, it's mostly well, if I, I throw I, in a minor seven that they're like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> see, and that's funny to me because dominant seven, I think, has its place in every every style of music should use dominant seven chords. Yeah, because of that strong resolution to the to the chord of fourth up. So, like a five seven to a one, you can't get stronger than that. That is like the strongest resolution cadence pull that there ever has been. And so, I, I just feel like every style of music use that. And it's funny that the minor sevens would throw people off because I feel like minor sevens are only logical. If I play a minor yeah. chord, I feel like it doesn't sound right without the seven. I feel like something's missing. I have a, a student, I think I've actually talked about her with the harmony stuff before, when I was um, playing different sevens for her so that she can start to hear the difference between them. The minor seven, she was like, oh, I really I really like how that sounds. And like that's the minor one. And she's like, it sounds like real minor. Like, yes. yeah, it does. It does. It's like, that's what minor should sound like. I'm like, thank you. Well done, child. You're great. I I agree. And you know what's even When you add the nine, the minor nine, it adds a sweetness to the minor chord. Oh, it minor nine it just, might be my favorite voicing of it chords. Just, yeah, because you take this minor chord that's really sad and mellow, and then you add a nice sweetness on top. It's like, mm. It kind of is like a little hopeful feeling to me. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, this is kind of sad sounding, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Like this actually is going somewhere. I don't know. I feel like adding extensions just adds so much color and fun to your music. I don't know. I just, I can't understand why people don't like to use it. Um, mm. But back to the, the worship band setting, the one that I feel like that is the most out of place is actually the major seven. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one that will murder the band instantly. Mm-hmm. At any time, it, like sometimes I see it in a chart and I ignore it because as soon as I play it, it derails the entire band, and it's right. You're just sitting there like, "Well, I played what I was supposed to, and I shouldn't have." Yeah, because sometimes it's... I do it in case there's a seven in the uh, the melody for some reason, mm-hmm. and by playing it and bringing not... that out, it actually helps them. But right. almost a hundred percent of the time, it must have been a writer that was tiptoeing their way into extensions and didn't realize that they're not writing in a style that properly accommodates them. When you have a bunch of volunteer singers that yeah. are not used to those sounds, and it, yeah, and it depends on the band too. Like um, Matt, have you ever listened to the the band Ascend the Hill? No, they're from Tampa. They. I don't think they're really doing much right now, but they use a lot of major sevens and for them, it complements, it is their sound. It really makes them sound good. That's good. If they didn't use the major sevens, their music would feel like there was something not, I feel like it would sound, feel like there's something missing in their music Mm. just because of the way that they do their voicings and everything. But for the most part, major sevens in worship music are a little crunchy. Yeah, uh, and even in rock, you don't see a lot in rock. You see minor sevens, and you see dominant sevens in rock, yeah. but not as many major sevens. It but doesn't in sound jazz. Right yeah, it's just not quite the sound. But in jazz, major sevens are all over the board. Yeah. Uh, one thing, other thing about these extensions to take in consideration too 
is that just because it says it's a 13 chord does not mean you have to play all the notes. So you don't have to play 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 13. No. So if it's a 13 chord, you can leave out the 11 and you can leave out the 9 if you want to, or leave out the 5 and the 11. or You don't have to play them all just because they're written. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it ends up being really, really dense and it ends up... Yeah. You're just taking just, up literally all of the space. Uh, if yeah. You're, if you're playing alone, then sure, maybe you have enough uh, big enough hands that on a piano mm-hmm. you can actually play all of them with a proper voice. Yeah, it's voice literally in. not possible on guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't do it. But if you really try on piano, then technically you could figure out voicings that would work. You just need big enough mm-hmm. hands to do so or be willing to go with a very, very crunchy sound. Um, I think we do need to mention the fact that when you make your voicings, it's very reliable for for you to always include the three and the seven. Mm-hmm. And the seven. And then if you add on to that the nine, eleven, or thirteen, awesome. If you yep. leave out the five, fine. If you have an 11 chord and you leave out the 9, fine. That's if you leave out expected. the root, fine. But you do need yeah, you the 3. Yeah, you can even leave out the root. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you yeah. have the 3 and you have the 7 and you have extensions that you might want, you will clearly define the chord. And that's yeah, because and 3 will tell you, is it major or minor? The 7 will yep. tell you, is it major 7 or dominant 7? And then everything else you can just add in there as the voicing sounds nice. You don't always have to have them there, but it does. It's very reliable for the progression. Right. They just make it tasty at that point. Yeah. And the cool thing is you can leave out the root because the bass player is going to play the root. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So as far as voicing stuff, like I'm not going to claim to be an expert of how you should voice it, especially not on piano. I'm sure Matt is the same way on piano. We're not going to claim to be experts. We just want to give you a taste of what they're there for. They Mm -hmm. just add so much, you know, even just like playing a really open chord, one, five, and nine, and leaving out the seven and leaving out the three. That is such a cool sound. Mm -hmm. I just, I like that sound. Now, I wouldn't use it for every situation because it's so open, but it does, it sounds really nice. So don't be afraid to experiment with those. And then you get into some of the strange extensions. Well, I say strange. They're really not that strange, but the more altered extensions like the flat nine or the sharp nine, sharp 11s, flat 13s. They, yeah, they're now those aren't necessarily special. I call them special or altered, whatever, but they're not necessarily because it depends on your chord that you're playing. Mm -hmm. Like a, um, a natural minor chord is not a 13. It's a flat 13. A Dorian chord would be a 13. A uh, a Phrygian, which in the key of C would be starting on E, has a flat nine naturally. So you wouldn't write it. You wouldn't write uh, E minor nine. You'd write E minor flat nine. Mm-hmm. If you wrote E minor nine, you're, somebody's going to play an F sharp, and then you might have some clashing going on depending on what the melody note is. But they just their color tones are a lot of fun. Someone to really listen to if you want to have some fun with extensions is Charles Mingus. Hmm. He does extension on top of extension on top of extension. He's got like whole whole tunes where it's basically written all in extensions and nothing else. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. So they're a lot of fun. You just got to be careful when you use them that you're not clashing with other people around you. 
but they're color tones that just add on top of your triad. So remember how I said triads are chords, but chords are not necessarily triads? Well, the reason is because if you have a C7, that's not a triad. You have four notes making up your chord. Real simple. Not you have a quad. rocket science. Yeah, a quad. <laughs> oh, man. Music is crazy. There's all sorts of fun stuff for, for music. I think that uh, the, the, the way that I use the altered extensions besides just color alone is also to mm-hmm. place on top of my voicings because that it's like a whole new level of powering up your chord in a progression. So say I'm playing a E minor nine and mm-hmm. I'm working my way to a, a, uh, an A. In some, in some way, shape, or form. Well, at the top of that, I'll have the minor nine, and the nine is up there. Then I'll make a flat nine because then it'll end up resolving into the A with the E on top of that. So it went from the F F flat. F, wait a minute. F, F sharp to F. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> I got that. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like why is it going over there but anyway the the point of it being is that the uh the altered extensions can really enhance the uh, progression from one chord into the other using chromatic movement and um and you can throw it in as like a sub on the fourth beat going into a new chord and Mm -hmm. uh you can go pretty doggone wild with it you could have like one a new one on two a new one on three a new one on four you could do like four different shapes of the same chord with different voicings and bam you're going all nuts nutsaloo and it sounds pretty doggone cool that's very busy and you need to be careful so don't think that that's the ultimate way of playing because that's uh a lot of changes in a very short amount of time, especially in a a higher tempo. But uh, as much as the altered extensions are very important for your playing and adding color, I do just Mm -hmm. also want to point out that you have to be very careful of using these with a singer because as soon as you start throwing those higher extensions with an alter, and it might um it might hit right off of one of the notes that they need a lot of the time they will totally miss that note they won't it'll just throw them off and they won't hit the note that they think they're supposed to hit or they do hit it and it clashes with the chord that you just played and as much as an, an instrumentalist they'll just hit the note that they're supposed to play a singer right. they'll they'll try to hit that note it'll sound wrong it'll throw them off and who are they going to blame? Not themselves. Not unless they're really uh, self-deprecating. They'll just look over at you like, what the heck did you do? It's my spotlight yeah, well, full. <laughs> that's the thing you got to remember when working with a vocalist. It's always at somebody else's fault. You're almost, <laughs> uh, almost all singers that you work with. There is a, because of the musical culture that we have, there's a mentality that you are supporting them. You are accompanying right. them. Now, mm-hmm. of course, I'm of the opinion that uh, a lot of singers need to realize that they are another instrument and we're all working together to make music. But I agree. It's just normal to understand that most singers are of the mentality, whether they like it or not, that they think that they are the they're, they're the frontman and you are supporting them 
even if you're working together. Like they just right. think you're the musical force that you know all the theory that you know how to make all that work and they'll just sing. So don't get in their yep. way and and but realize that if you understand your singer that way and you don't really have an intention of changing their mentality because you like playing with them, then just understand to not get in their way. Just support them. Right. Just let them have their 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 way. Don't mess with them too much with those extensions. But you can use them. You just have to resolve them nice and quickly and smoothly and get out of their way. And they're not going to notice. They'll just hear the nice color and they'll love it. So if you hang on an altered extension, then they'll probably hate you and not want to play with you anymore or sing while you play. Yeah, yeah. But if you get them out of the way quickly, then it won't actually interfere with their notes and it won't confuse them too much. And they'll just hear the progression moving forward and it'll sound nice. Right. It's kind of like as a bass player, you just can't play too busy. I know bass players that are fantastic players. They get muted every time they play it, play it places <laughs> because they play too many notes and they get in everybody's way. Yeah. They just hit mute on the soundboard because they can, you know, it's like you just got to be tasteful about it. They're great tools. They're awesome colors to use. And they are, these are really good building blocks that'll give you help us to explain harmony to you better once we get to that point. But um, Matt, do you have any listening recommendations for this week? Um, did you, I figured you would, if you said so, I didn't really yeah, I, I was gonna, because of the topic matter, we're talking, we're said so the subject matter we're discussing here, talking about extensions. I'd say, well, just listen to Charles Mingus, just listen to some stuff. You'll, you'll love it. Um, it's like we said, it's got a lot of extensions. His big band writing is, is really good mm. because that's where you really get to see the extensions shine where he uses all those color tones that aren't necessarily part of the, like part of the basis of the chord. They just add more flavor to it. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think he's a really good study for this sort of thing. And then again, I was listening to Wes Montgomery this week and just, I was trying to write a blog post and I was sitting down I was like, let me play some Wes Montgomery. That'll help me focus. Yeah. Well, no, (laughs) 30 seconds into it. I'm like, I have to just sit here and listen to, to Wes play. I, I, I was just blown away. And then Joe Pass came on and it was uh, his uh, one of his versions of Satin Doll and I was like, Ugh. I was like drool starting to come out of my mouth, you know. <laughs> He's that the version that you uh, sent me that you were listening to, I've heard mm-hmm. him play that a few different ways and seen a few videos. I don't think that I've seen that one. Mostly because I don't remember really the, the the moment that he makes the little uh he like starts scraping the strings and makes a funny face and stuff. And I don't remember that. I think I would have remembered it. Um, yeah. He just did that as a joke. Yeah. He was just being silly, but, uh, that was, that was a really solid one. And he's had a few, he's made a few videos or people have recorded him and posted it on YouTube that are really good recordings of that song. I, he must've really, really loved it. Like he plays everything incredibly. But there's something about the way he plays Satin Doll that is so confident and he makes it look like it's the easiest song to play in the entire world. And he's playing yeah. it up tempo. And it's not a hard, yeah, it's not a hard song, but it's not as easy as he makes it sound. Oh, no. If you try to play it exactly like Joe Pass does, good luck to you. Yeah, I know. He does oh, many gosh. things at once, even though he's playing with other players. He's he's a master of voicings, that's for sure. But yeah. uh, 
my recommendation, I was going to find a specific album, but uh, Spotify has one too many, so I'm going to throw in the towel on that one. Just go listen to Thelonious Monk. Oh, yeah. If you want to learn for this too. If you want to learn how to push the envelope on your voicings and really find incredible sounds with a piano, Thelonious Monk has taught me an extreme amount of of uh of tone and color for my guitar playing that I haven't even learned from other guitarists. Like a lot of my um playing is inspired by Thelonious Monk and the way that he plays and the way that he just says, oh, you know all the rules and all the things you think you should hear? No. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make it sound good. How about that? You're not going to hear what you think, and I'm going to make it sound good. I'm just like, yeah, you do that. And how did you do that? Oh, my. Oh, my gosh. Because there's this way that he plays stuff that uh, it'll start playing, and you're like, oh, that, that sounds weird. But after yeah. two seconds, you're like, it doesn't sound weird. It sounds gorgeous. It, it, it's everything wrong making everything right. And uh, there, there's so many stories of, of uh, Thelonious just chilling in his apartment in New York, him and Coltrane. Uh, Coltrane just wailing away on his saxophone and him sitting there at the piano. And they're just trying to find all the new sounds in every weird possible way that they can and uh thelonious's wife kicked them out eventually <laughs> because she couldn't that's handle funny. how how much it sounded like dying cats or whatever i think i think that's i think it's thelonious's wife but uh oh, just man. funny stories of of him just he he was always playing he yeah, was rather I at think- a bar playing or he was somewhere else playing and if you just followed him You'd be able to hear some amazing things because he was he was one of those guys. He didn't play the same thing twice. And he made a, a a very big effort of that, which I respect that more than anything else. When someone's just like, I'm going to play music. There will be songs. Right. But I'm not going to play it the way that I always have. You're not going to go and hear Thelonious play his version of April in Paris. And it's going to be the same every single time. He's going to mess yeah. with it every time he plays it and play it a new way. And you're going to hear new things. So it's like some of that you could literally just follow around and hear new music all the time. Yeah. 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 That's a really good recommendation as well. So I, I just thought of something and listeners, let us know what you think. Cause I, th- this, I think it'd be pretty cool, but you know, if you guys don't think it's a good idea, then we won't do it. But what if we make a Spotify playlist of all of our, all of our re- listening recommendations that we just make public for everybody to be able to follow. So let us nice. know what you think about that. I think that's a cool idea. I think Open Studio does that for their You'll Hear It podcast. Um, I think that'd be a cool way to do it. We can just put everything in one spot. That way I can just have one link every week for listening recommendations instead of having to find like 10 of them. (laughs) Be a little bit quicker for everybody. And everything will be in the same spot. You can listen to every recommendation we've ever had. (laughs) It could be a really interesting combination since I I tend to throw in some weird stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So... I know I said I was hoping to make a special announcement this week. We're holding off on that. Didn't get quite finished with that job yet. So hopefully we'll have it ready soon for you guys next couple weeks or so. So we'll keep, stay tuned. We'll keep you posted. We'll let you know. Uh, yeah. I also want to say thank you guys for sharing the podcast because we've noticed a little bit of an uptick in our download numbers. So yeah. I'm hoping that continues. Uh, we're on Spotify now too. So if you like, prefer to use Spotify for everything, just search us there, just the basics. You'll find us. 
we got all 16 episodes up there. We're super uh, proud of that. Yeah, I'm really excited about that one. So you can now find us on our website, uh, TommyBowls.com. Uh, you can find us on Podbean, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher. So we're pretty much anywhere that you could listen to podcasts. Now, the only place we don't have anything up on yet is Pandora. Um, I submitted something to Pandora, never heard back from them. So I, uh, I don't know. I must've done something wrong. So I'll look into that one again. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, if you want us on Pandora, let us know. I mean, we're, Oh, we're also on Google play as well. So that's true. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, if there's a one place that we're missing that you really want us to be on, let us know. That'd be really cool. I'm also working on something where we're going to have a private RSS feed for people to be able to get early access episodes. So that should be out in the next couple of weeks as well. So stay tuned to that because that might be something cool if you like to like to listen to us talk. <laughs> a way to get to hear us before everybody else does. So that and we're starting to post some more blog posts actually about every episode. So I posted one to go along with the why is music theory important. And if you guys like that, please share it. We want to get the word out to as many people as possible so we can continue to grow our numbers and to continue to create better content for you. Mm-hmm. We can't do it without you guys, without your support. So uh, please continue to to support us, and we really appreciate everything that you guys have done listening to us. Mm. Oh, um, one other thing, I made a mistake on the last episode <laughs> when I uploaded it. So if you guys listen to it within the last like three, within like Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, I am sorry. Because I uploaded it at double speed by mistake. And so I fixed it. It's back to normal now. I checked iTunes and Spotify. They both have the proper track now. So sorry about that. Um, That was kind of funny. When I noticed that, I was super embarrassed. I couldn't believe I had done that. So the whole podcast was done in 35 minutes instead of a little over an hour. So I mean, I guess that part was kind of cool. Yeah, it was funny, except everything sounded really weird. Like our voices just, I mean, we were talking really fast and it sounded like a little mouse talking and yada, yada, yada. And the music like, and then the little signing off, it was like, what the heck? It was just not right at all. So I'm sorry about that. That's all folks. So hopefully that won't happen again. I'm going to pay more attention to that next time I upload it, but. Anyways, thanks for sticking around with us and listening to everything. And we really appreciate you guys listening to us every week. Please keep sharing it with all your friends. Oh, we're on YouTube too. I didn't say that one. Oh, yeah. I've been posting them on YouTube as well. So, In, in case you you're prefer, one of those people that uh, watches YouTube podcasts and puts them in your pocket to listen to them or whatever people do. Yeah. <laughs> we don't actually have video of us talking because that's something we just... We don't have the the funds nor the time to get the equipment that we need and set up our own studios and all that stuff. So eventually that's something I would like to do, but that will probably be a little bit in the future. My, my assumption is is that could literally kill Tommy. So we're, we're going to hold off on the uh, the video yeah. format for now. And then we have we have some plans for what we could do alternatively than just webcamming our faces. Uh, I, I think that you, you would prefer over... Seeing me and my morning self with my coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're working on some cool ideas for you guys. So thanks for uh, tuning in, and we'll see you guys next week. See you later. Mm-hmm.